My God, Meg, this is a tough one. Isthmus. Isthmus. Welcome back to Countries in Common. I have to admit this podcast job is not as easy as I think we thought it would be, but it has made us uh, think a little bit about managing it better for ourselves in the future. Of course, the more practice we have at it, the easier it'll become. But presently, I personally spend time on on it every day. And I know that for you, Dad, it can become difficult Um, as you may have to put time aside to work on it, research our next episode, etc. And then if a client calls, you also have to tend to their needs. So for our listeners, we want to let you know that this season, Pandemic Superstars will feature two more episodes after today's that we'll be putting out every week as we have been so far. And after that, we'll be taking a short hiatus to plan and get ahead of ourselves for season two. Speaking of season two, Uh, Meg, I have lots of ideas, but we would also be thrilled to hear some from our listeners as well. Like, last week's episode gave me an idea to have a season to discuss original places of holidays across the world, as well as discussing which countries hold the largest celebrations for certain holidays. For example, one of the countries we are discussing today as a COVID superstar actually planned a revolt on March 17th in an attempt to free themselves from slavery, assuming that many Irish slave owners would be drunk and distracted. They now celebrate the day, but for different reasons than they do on the Emerald Isle itself. But we'll have more on that later. And as I have alluded to earlier this season, we also have an idea um, to plan some time to discuss some of the smallest countries in the world or countries known as micro countries and their commonalities and reasons for remaining independent despite being often surrounded entirely by other countries. So please feel free to send us any ideas you have for future seasons, and we'll take a look at the ideas as we plan for future episodes. You can email us at countriesincommon at gmail.com. And Meg, we had a review this week by MJ de Toronto, who I suspect I know from high school days. So thanks, Marie. (laughs) But back to today's episode, while we were putting together our short list of countries that seem to have outperformed the others at the beginning of this season, we noticed something peculiar. As most of you know, the world is divided into different quadrants using imaginary lines called latitude and longitude. An easy way to remember the difference between the two, as I learned in grade school, albeit in French, is nord-sud latitude. Did you like that, Dad? That's great, Mick. All I learned in high, in, in uh, grade school French was stylo <laughs> and pencil and pen crayon. They don't they don't say pencil. I did. <laughs> <laughs> One might argue that longitude also rhymes with sud, the French word for south. But there's an R movement that goes with it, and it stuck with me all these years. So latitude lines are generally more well-known, the equator being the most famous of them all, and those lines run parallel to each other and thus never touch. The equator is considered zero degrees, and all other latitude lines are referred to between zero and 90 degrees, either north or south. So the south pole is at 90 degrees south, and the north pole is at 90 degrees north. Longitude lines, on the other hand, run a little more like slices of an orange. They all start at the top and join again at the bottom. They are all the same length, which may have something to do with their name being longitude. These lines are also known as meridians, the most famous of which is the prime meridian, also known as the Greenwich Line, as it passes near the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England. This is defined as zero degrees longitude. You can use an angular measurement to determine how many degrees east or west another meridian is, up to 180 degrees east or west, which will bring you to an imaginary line that runs through the South Pacific. The anti-meridian. Where's the anti-meridian? I just, I learned later during our research that it's called the anti-meridian. The one through the South Pacific. Oh, I didn't know that. I just learned that today. Go ahead. Well done. Thanks. So time is also based on the Greenwich Meridian, 
As a way of standardizing time, the first defined time zone of noon is the Greenwich Meridian, and that first time zone moves out by 7.5 degrees east and west. Times are calculated at either a.m. or anti-meridian, or as post-meridian, p.m. Many countries use this system, but there's always confusion as to which time midnight or noon represents. Noon is actually 12 p.m., and midnight is 12 a.m. Right. So we noticed that quite a few countries, they've done really well with COVID, and they fall very close to the 60th meridian, to be exact, which is 60 degrees west of the prime meridian. Now, you might be amazed by this and think about packing your bags to head to this magical line, but I should mention that once you look at this line, it becomes a little easier to understand the reasons why it has such low COVID rates in the countries that are near it. With the exception of the eastern side of South America, it doesn't really pass through any continents. So it is important to note that this line does pass through a big part of Brazil, and Brazil is not doing so great with the pandemic. But to be fair, it kind of passes through an area of Brazil that is not very populated, the Amazon jungle. So I don't know how much COVID there is in the Amazon jungle, but I can imagine they might be doing a little better than the big cities in Brazil. But anyway, this is just to mention that obviously there isn't anything super magical about this line. However, it passes through a lot of ocean and a few islands, and most of those islands have done super well with COVID. Indeed, the countries we are going to discuss today all fall within five degrees of the 60th meridian, and we are going to explore them from north to south. So in that order, the countries for episode six of the series Pandemic Superstars are Greenland, St. Pierre and Miquelon, Anguilla, St. Kitts and Nevis, Montserrat, Dominica, Grenada, and the Falkland Islands. Starting pretty much as north as you can go, let's head to Greenland. In fact, Greenland does indeed have the northernmost permanent land in the world, which is located on Kaffeklöben Island. Greenland is an autonomous territory within the Kingdom of Denmark and has only recorded a total of 31 cases of COVID with zero deaths and currently they have zero active cases. They have a population of roughly 56,000 people and almost 90% of them are indigenous Inuit, a people group that they have in common with many other distinct areas of Canada as well as Alaska. The Greenlandic Inuit people arrived in Greenland first from Canada's Ellesmere Island between 4,000 and 4,500 years ago. They divided into two groups along the north and the south as the Independence One and the Sakak cultures. While the Independence One went extinct for unknown reasons a, a thousand years later, the Sakak culture to this day remains the longest continually living people group in Greenland. Although the current Inuit in Greenland are a product of a distinctly separate migration to that of the Sakak, who mysteriously disappeared about 700 years ago, they had lived in Greenland for almost 4,000 years. Quite impressive for a country where there is little arable land and almost all food comes from hunting and fishing. Meg, Greenland is the largest island in the world at 2.1 million square kilometers. Indeed, in terms of latitude and longitude, it spans between the 60th and 83rd degree north. And because of the northern part of Greenland is so close to the meeting point of longitude lines, it actually spans between 12 and 73 degrees west. Closer to the equator, this difference in longitude is represented between Sierra Leone and Colombia. Wow. Now, unless you are looking at Greenland on a globe, as opposed to Google Maps or an atlas, it will seem much larger than it actually is. This is due to the Mercator effect, but we will talk about that during a later season. About 90% of the population lives in towns along the West Coast, which puts the majority of the population between 52 and 55 degrees West, very close to the 60th meridian. Being an autonomous region of Denmark... This means that Greenland is politically part of Europe. It is actually physiographically part of North America. Indeed, it is only 26 kilometers away from Ellesmere Island, 
but also can be considered as north, south, and west, and technically east of Iceland, indirectly speaking. Eric the Red is said to be the first Norseman to have settled in Greenland after being exiled from Iceland for manslaughter and named it Greenland as a marketing ploy. (laughs) He assumed that giving it a pleasant name would attract other settlers to join him. His son, Leif Erikson, was said to have been the first person to have settled in Canada. I do find it interesting that Greenland's first indigenous people originated from what is now modern-day Canada, and that Canada's first non-indigenous explorers arrived via that same place. Kind of full circle, don't you think? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Greenlandic is also the name of the official language in Greenland, which technically refers to three different indigenous languages that are not dialects of the same language and virtually incomprehensible to the other languages. Those languages are Inuktun, Tunimisut, and the largest is Kalalisut. Indeed, the indigenous name for Greenland is Kalalitnunat, which means land of the Kalalits, which are the Inuit group that inhabits the country's western region. There are actually a few Greenlandic words that are used in English, such as kayak and igloo. Given that Greenland is 75% covered by the only permanent ice sheet outside of Antarctica, igloos might come in handy. Indeed, Greenland is considered the least densely populated region in the world. The Greenland ice sheet, by the way, is said to contain about 7% of the world's fresh water, and if it melted, it would raise sea levels by 7 meters. The weight of that ice sheet is said to have depressed the central land area of Greenland and has likely formed a basin lying more than 300 meters below sea level, while elevations rise suddenly and steeply near the coast. The highest point is on the Gunbjorn Fjord to the east of the country. And with that mention of yet another geographic feature, why don't you give our listeners a bit of a lesson about what exactly a fjord is, and for the sake of the episode, let them know what a strait and an isthmus are as well. Well, alrighty. <laughs> First of all, a fjord is a long, narrow, marine inlet with steep sides or cliffs created by glacial erosion. These are mostly found near the Arctic Pole, particularly in Alaska, Denmark, Iceland, Ireland, Norway, northern Canada, and of course Greenland. But also along the Antarctic Pole as well, in Antarctica, Chile, and of course New Zealand. Norway's coastline is estimated at 29,000 kilometers, but if you excluded the fjords, it would only be about 2,500 kilometers. A strait is a naturally formed, narrow, typically navigable waterway that connects two large bodies of water. Most commonly is the channel of water that lies between two land masses. Some famous straits are the Strait of Magellan, the Strait of Gibraltar, and the English Channel. But the narrow place between Ellesmere Island and Greenland is called the Nars Strait. I don't even know why I had to tell people about the Nars Strait, as everyone naturally knows that one. It has to be one of the world's most famous. Are you serious? No. Okay. (laughs) I was like, I definitely had to look that up for this. (laughs) This is the most interesting, Meg. An isthmus. 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 This is a topic. The isthmus. There you go. An isthmus is the converse of a strait, meaning that an isthmus is a narrow piece of land connecting two larger areas across an expanse of water by which they are otherwise separated. Some famous isthmuses are the isthmus of Panama, the isthmus of Suez, and we will tell you shortly about another. For everyone under the age of 20, Converse means the inverse, not a popular brand of sneakers. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. Greenland is also home to the largest and northernmost national park in the world. It doesn't have a super interesting name. It's called the Northeast Greenland National Park. It was established in 1974 and expanded to its present size in 1988, and it protects just short of 1 million square kilometers of Greenland making the national park larger than all but 29 countries of the world. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. A little more in the history of Greenland. After the original Paleo-Greenlandic migrant groups mysteriously disappeared, another migration 
referred to as the thule. I think it's thule, like the thing that holds kayaks on your car. You're kidding me. Isn't that what you guys call the... Yeah, Swedish, it's thule. Yeah. Is it Swedish? It is Swedish. Well, I mean, the Swedish ha- are make the ones that make those racks. I think they're named after this migrant group. They, they might be, because they're migrating your crap on top of a car. Exactly. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Another migration referred to as the Thule culture arrived in the 13th century, bringing with them technological innovations such as dog sleds and toggling harpoons. To this day, dogs are not considered pets in Greenland, and they fight hard to maintain the breeding lines of the Greenlandic dog population. Dog sledding still functions as a mode of hunting and transport above the Arctic Circle, and dogs are regarded as working animals, staying outside the the house all year as they may have unpredictable wolf genes. Mm. Other animals you may find in Greenland are polar bears, Arctic wolves, muskox, and reindeer. Anyway, Eric the Red and his people settled in the southernmost point, close to the town of Kaykortok, between the 11th and 16th centuries. There is actually a stone church from that area that, that serves as a remnant of the Norse settlement. At this southern tip of the island, farming and agriculture are possible, and is likely that's why Eric and his family chose the section. However, the Norse colonies disappeared in the late 15th century and is still unknown what caused their disappearance. Some think it was due to a little ice age, um, so that they may have lost their chance to, for agricultural um, cultivation. Others wondered if a trip back to Norway during the Black Death may have brought the disease to the settlement, and yet another group wonders if there was conflicts with the ind- indigenous Inuit. At this point in time, Greenland was considered to be part of Norway. However, it was only in the 1700s that the Danish-Norwegian attempted recolonization. Indeed, those that arrived in the 1700s assumed they would be meeting up with Norse settlers to spread the word of Christianity, but were surprised to only find Inuit people present. When the union between Norway and Denmark dissolved in 1814, Greenland was claimed by Denmark, and it was fully integrated into the Danish constitution in 1953. And thus the Greenlandic people became Danish citizens, which also makes them citizens of the EU. In 1979, Denmark granted home rule to Greenland. In 2008, Greenlanders voted in favor of self-government act, which transferred more power from the Danish government to the local Greenlandic government. The U.S. has tried to buy Greenland a few times over the past century, including once in 2019, wherein Greenland's premier, Kim Kielsen, issued the statement, Greenland is not for sale and cannot be sold, but Greenland is open for trade and cooperation with other countries, including the United States. In terms of trade, fishing accounts for more than 90% of Greenland's exports. As of 2009, 269 species of fish from over 80 different families are known from the waters surrounding Greenland. Almost all are marine species with only a few in freshwater, notably Atlantic salmon and char. Have you heard of the Greenland shark, which is known to be like the oldest living creature in the world? Uh, Has he still got his teeth? (laughs) I think he might. I love sharks. He's 512 years old. And he's in Greenland. He's in Greenland. Wow. How do they know he's 512 years old? They look at his birth certificate? I think so. Was he born in Hawaii? I don't know. Why? I'm just wondering about birth of rights. (laughs) It's an Obama joke. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, though, these Greenland sharks are not ready to reproduce until they're 156 years old. So they figured out how old he was because uh, sharks only grow about one centimeter a year. So they used his size to figure out how old he was. Wow. But like, it's very much like plus or minus 120 years. So it's a bit of a guess. Okay. However, what the U.S. was probably interested in is the abundance of minerals in Greenland. Mining of ruby deposits began in 2007 and other mineral prospects are improving as prices are increasing. The rubies in Greenland are said to be among the oldest in the world, and they are approximately 3 billion years old. And they are also considered to be the world's most responsibly sourced rubies, as you can track them from mine to sale. Ruby also makes one heck of a cute name for a cat. 
So just want to give a shout out to Jen and Cody's Ruby Tuesday. Something I found even more interesting was that Greenland only has 16 kilometers of road, none of which actually connect any towns. But they do have 2,570 cars owned in the country, almost all of them in Nook. Also, apparently in the month of March, you can go ice golfing on a course cut into the ice between icebergs and out into the snowfields during the ice golf world championship. <laughs> With like world championship, that suggests that you had to have like qualified for them, you know? Yeah, I don't think Tiger Woods has won it. I don't think, you know, that might be the one that he should probably get to as soon as possible before that ice melts. Well, all those cars would have European Union license plates, which is a great way to slide into our next country, which is only 17 degrees south and 4 degrees west of Nuuk at 56 degrees west. Saint-Pierre et Miquelon. This also represents the closest we've ever come to Canada, given that these islands are only 25 kilometers from Newfoundland, yet somehow a French territory. Saint-Pierre and Miquelon is almost 4,000 kilometers from France, yet they use the euro as their currency, and given that you can take your vehicle across to Newfoundland on the ferry, it means that Newfoundland is the only place in North America that you can regularly see European license plates. The small self-governing region of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon had a total of 24 cases of COVID and currently has zero active cases as well as zero recorded deaths. The population of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon is only, you know, 5,600, and that number hasn't really grown or shrunk in the past 50 years. Their official language is French, though it differs greatly from French-Canadian, and the country feels like a true blend between maritime and French culture. It is also the only place in the world where you can travel west and set your clock forward, kind of making it feel like you are time traveling. Since Newfoundland has its own time zone at UTC minus three hours and 30 minutes, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon is at UTC minus three hours. Saint-Pierre and Miquelon is actually made up of eight islands, though only three are considered to be major. Saint-Pierre, Miquelon, and Langlade, which isn't technically its own island, as it is separated by a thin, sandy isthmus, which is the converse of a strait. However, a good pair of converse sneakers would help you to run from one island to another. While Saint-Pierre is the smallest island, it makes up the majority of the population, while only about 600 people live on Miquelon. 600 is also the number of shipwrecks said to be found in the strait between Langlon and Saint-Pierre, known as the Mouth of Hell. Or in French, oh, here we go, Guilherme d'Enfer. <laughs> Not even close, right, Meg? Not even close. Gueule d'Enfer. And see, right there is what I must assume is the difference between France French and French Canadian French, because gueule is not considered to be a nice word in French Canadian. Indeed, most people would consider it to be a bad word and is a very major part in telling somebody to be quiet in the least nicest way. And you know what, Meg? That particular stretch of water doesn't come across as very navigable to me. Because of the barren and rocky islands, the economy is primarily based on fishing, fish processing, and repairs of fishing fleets. Historically, although it was visited by the indigenous people of the Canadian Maritime, the Mi'kmaq people, the islands were not permanently settled until the end of the 17th century, when settlements were established by the French. The islands then went through some tumultuous times in the 18th and 19th century, where thrice the British invaded and sent every inhabitant, about 2,000, back to France. Must have been tough going back then, going back to France and, and waiting for the all clear so you could go back. French inhabited the islands between 1763, but were expelled in 1778. They were again expelled in 1794 until 1802, and again from 1803 until 1814. The islands were resettled by the French in 1816, and they had to rebuild everything but has remained in the hands of the French since. Do you think they had like frequent miles? Frequent flyer points. Yeah, but for ships going back and forth. Frequent from... sailing point, points. Sailor sailor points. Yeah. yeah they, I wonder if they had those back I am, then. I am sure they got a, a few f free ferry rides to Newfoundland. For sure. For sure. Here's an interesting little sidebar. Oh, this is a great one, Meg. I love this story. The guillotine was used just once in 1889 as a form of execution for the crime of murder. It had to be shipped from Martinique, then repaired before it was used. 
and no resident on the island wanted to be the executioner. So they had to coax a new immigrant into doing the job. The guillotine is now in the museum on the island. In the 1930s, the island had a huge economic boom where they imported almost 7 million liters of Canadian whiskey in 12 months and smuggled it into the U.S. Indeed, it was used as an outpost by Al Capone to do so. In the 1970s and up until 1992, Canada and France butted heads over the size of St. Pierre and Miquelon's exclusive economic zone. The French claimed a large zone that Canada disputed because of the declines in the fish stock in the Grand Banks and oil and gas exploration. There were some tensions at the time, and France even required Canadians to have a visa to visit France, which likely cut back on their kids' hockey trips as St. Pierre and Miquelon kids generally play in the Newfoundland leagues. The dispute was settled by arbitration in 1992, with France retaining an exclusive economic zone of about 12,500 square kilometers, along with a corridor through the Canadian EEZ for the purpose of access to international waters. Interestingly enough, there are actually two different demonyms for the residents of the island, the Saint-Pierre and the Miquelonne. Saint-Pierre, by the way, is the patron saint of fishermen. And the capital, Saint-Pierre, does not have any shopping malls. And about 70% of the island's supplies are imported from Canada. The lack of shopping malls, casinos, and high-rise hotels might seem right on par with this maritime French collectivity. But what's surprising is that our next country, sandwiched between the Virgin Islands, Saint-Martin, and Saint-Barts, is also absent of all that glitz and glamour. Off to Anguilla, 29 degrees southward, but only 7 degrees east. Anguilla, with a population of only 15,000, has reported 22 cases of COVID and only has three remaining active cases as of today. They maintain the streak of their northern counterparts in having zero deaths associated with the pandemic and happen to be only three degrees from our magic 60th meridian. Anguilla is a British overseas territory that was apparently named as Christopher Columbus sailed by in 1493 and named it as such after the Spanish word for eel, due to its eel-like appearance. The small island is only 26 kilometers long and 6 kilometers wide. Though none of the hotels in the islands are high-rise in nature, there are about 20, so for the 68,000 or so visitors to stay in, they're quite comfortable. Indeed, it is a very popular destination among celebrities because of its remoteness and it's considered a frequent holiday spot for celebs like Sandra Bullock, Jay-Z and Beyonce, Denzel Washington, Michael Jordan, Liam Neeson, Leonardo DiCaprio and Paris Hilton. Chuck Norris actually lived there for a while. Anguilla is also popular among the very rich as it serves as a tax haven since there is no capital gains, estate, profit, or other forms of direct taxation. Well, what they lack in taxes, they make up for in goats and chickens, which run astray across the island. Anguilla is also the only country in the world that features a dolphin on its flag. Oh, I read about an interesting evolutionary phenomenon that biologists are having the pleasure of studying in Anguilla. There have always been questions about how certain animals got from one place to the other across water. Well, in 1995, the Caribbean was struck by Hurricanes Luis and Maryland basically back to back. And several weeks later, Anguillans reported seeing a new type of iguana that differed from the one they were used to seeing. It was the green iguana, a species that is commonly found in Montserrat and Guadeloupe. Um, Ellen J. Sensky, which is a biologist who booked an immediate flight to Anguilla to see what was going on, said that many people shared that the iguanas had come up on rafts. That's right. Rafting iguanas seem to be washing up and invading the beaches of Anguilla. To quote some of the story that she shared for the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, over a period of three days, a mat of hundreds of logs and trees that had come floating ashore on the northeastern beaches, having been uprooted from another island and cast out to sea as a result of the hurricane's torrential winds and rain. Iguanas had apparently been stuck in some of those trees when the storm struck, and they were washed out to sea with the trees, eventually washing ashore on Anguilla, still clinging to those trees." Clues such as the type of trees, the known distribution of green iguana of the Lesser Antilles, and the path of the storm and ocean currents, not to mention a sign that washed up bearing the inscription Parque Nacional de Guadalupe, 
all led me to believe that these iguanas came from the island of Guadalupe, which lies 175 nautical miles southeast of Anguilla. Adrift at sea for more than a month and at the mercy of the ocean currents, these animals most probably traveled much further than 175 miles to reach Anguilla's shores, end quote. This gives a little credence to one of the theories uh, that debated how animals got to the Lesser Antilles. Some biologists believe that a land bridge existed from South America that was later submerged, but others suggest that overwater dispersal was how it was done via rafts made of logs or other vegetation. The green iguana invasion of 1995 may not prove or disprove either theory, but it certainly supports one and was the first documentation of relatively large animals rafting en masse. So the biologists of Anguilla get to sit back and watch the reptilian invaders to see how it impacts other local species and whether or not the invading species survives or if it needs to evolve in order to do so. It's interesting that you bring up that they are able to learn from their from this instead of interrupting what is naturally occurring. In many countries, infertile soil means the import of phosphate, maybe from Western Sahara or Nehru. But in Anguilla, the generally unfertile soil may have had long-term positive effects, as the population is generally highly cooperative, particularly in times of hurricane devastation. The population is not highly divided by social or economic circumstances, at the, as the plantation style of division never took hold in Anguilla. The population generally works together without large divisions in wealth. The Anguillan people are also very polite and still exhibit formal titles to people. They address each other as Mr. and Mrs. or Nurse Jones or Dr. Smith. Nude sunbathing is strictly forbidden and bathing suits are frowned upon outside of the beach. Actually, Anguilla used to be directly linked to our next country. Well, not by land, but politically so. From 1824 to 1969... Anguilla was tied to St. Kitts as they were administered by St. Kitts. They felt that the St. Kitts government was not looking out for their best interests, and in 1967, they rebelled by expelling the St. Kitts administrator. For the next seven years, various proposals were made, and a second referendum was voted on, of which both were overwhelmingly to split from being administered by St. Kitts. In 1976, they achieved self-rule while remaining as a British territory. It's of no surprise to everyone that St. Kitts and Nevis, being only 101 kilometers southeast of Anguilla, lies in relatively close coordinates, 17 degrees north and 60 degrees west, remaining very close to our magic meridian. With a population of only 52,000, St. Kitts and Nevis is the smallest sovereign nation in the Americas in terms of landmass and population. They have reported 44 cases of COVID total with the same number of active cases as Anguilla at two. Again, they continue the streak as they have recorded zero deaths. The islands only take up about 260 square kilometers and are made up of two islands, the first of which is called St. Kitts, but officially St. Christopher's, as it was named after Columbus's very own patron saint and nicknamed St. Kitts after his very own nickname, which was Kit. Nevis was also named by Columbus as he sailed by and seemed to think that it either was or resembled a snow-capped mountain. So Nevis is a word that is much like the Spanish word for snow, Nieves. And I really can't get on board with how we just sail by and name the islands without so much as even stepping foot on any of them. There's a strait between the two islands known as the Narrows, and every spring there's a swim organized between them. The distance is about three kilometers, and the fastest time recorded is said to be 58 minutes. So obviously, this particular strait must be much calmer and less prone to shipwrecks than the Gueule d'Enfer. <laughs> Nevis is the birthplace and early childhood home of Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the United States. Born in Nevis in 1755, Hamilton spent a significant part of his childhood on Nevis. His father was a trader from Scotland, his mother was from Nevis. St. Kitts was the birthplace of Edward Ned Young. He was an honorary midshipman on the Bounty and ended up on Pitcairn Island with Fletch 
and the Mutineers. Whoa. Just a little throwback to our first episode of Countries in Common. Nice. St. Kitts and Nevis is considered the earliest colonized Caribbean territory, which began in 1623. Kalinago leader Tegramund became uneasy with the increasing number of English and French settlers occupied St. Kitts. This led to more confrontations, which compelled him to plot the settlers' elimination with other indigenous peoples. His scheme was betrayed by a woman named Barbie to Thomas Warner and Pierre Belin de Znambuk. Taking action, the English and French settlers invited the Kalinago mm-hmm. to a party where they were they were became intoxicated. When the Kalinago returned to their village, 120 were killed in their sleep, including Tegramon. The following day, thousands more Kalinago were forced into an area of Bloody Point and Bloody River, where historian Vincent K. Hubert estimates 2,000 were massacred, even after they were attempting to surrender. The remaining Calilongo fled, but by 1640, those not already enslaved were moved to Dominica. It is now a member of the British Commonwealth. St. Kitts and Nevis is an English-speaking nation and gained independence from Britain in 1983. St. Kitts and Nevis has quite a lot in common with our next country. Being a volcanic island, the tallest volcano is not the one that Columbus assumed was snow-covered, but Mount Liamuiga, which, at over 1,100 meters, is thought to have last erupted some 200 years ago. You can actually hike through pristine tropical forest to its summit, a mile-wide volcanic crater known as the Giant's Salad Bowl. Not only do they have this in common with the next country, which is at, which is only about 48 kilometers southeast of St. Kitts and Nevis, but they also share a national dish called goat's water, which is a stew made with goat's meat and veggies. Actually, while we broach the subject of national dishes, almost every single country that we are talking about in this 60th Meridian episode has either a soup or a stew as the national dish. In Greenland, suasat is a soup made from seal or reindeer or whale meat with onions and potatoes. In St. Pierre and Miquelon, a common dish is tiaud, a thick fisherman's stew of potatoes, carrots, and cod. Anguilla is the exception, as pigeon peas and rice is considered their national dish, but Callaloo stew is very common as well. As mentioned, St. Kitts, as well as Montserrat, which is coming up, have goat's water as their national dish, Dominica also has Callaloo stew as its national dish, and Grenada has something called oil down, a stew that's cooked in coconut milk until all the milk is absorbed, leaving a little bit of coconut oil at the bottom of the pot. While the Falkland Islands don't necessarily have a national dish, the predominance of sheep, which we will talk about later, means that mutton stew is ubiquitous with the islands. Anyway, onward to Montserrat, which has a population of about 5,000 and only 20 cases of COVID total. Unfortunately, they have recorded one death from COVID, even though they are even closer to that magic meridian at 62 degrees west. Montserrat is an internally self-governing overseas territory within the Commonwealth. The British monarch is the head of state, represented by an appointed governor. It is actually commonly referred to as the Emerald Isle of the Caribbean for two reasons. One, it holds a resemblance to coastal Ireland, and two, for the Irish ancestry of many of its inhabitants. In 1632, it was colonized by Irish colonists from St. Kitts at the instigation of the island's governor, and to this day it has a strong mix of Irish in their society. In fact, Gaelic was spoken by a great deal of the population up to the middle of the 19th century, including, much to the shock of many visitors, the black population, the Irish being historical allies of the French, especially in their dislike of the English, invited the French to claim the island in 1666 although no troops were sent by France to maintain control. However, once the French did show up, attack, and briefly occupy the island in the late 1660s, it was recaptured by the English the following year. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, we plan to have a whole season about the origin and prevalence of holidays, but I can't stop myself from telling you that Montserrat is the only other country where St. Patrick's Day is a public holiday. There was a lot of people um, from Ireland that lived in Montserrat that were also indentured servants, so they weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily run the plantations. They were working alongside the African enslaved people. There was a lot of cultural mixing between the two of them. So a huge amount of Montserrat's people have like Irish heritage line. 
Despite being named after a monastery in Spain, Montserrat, meaning serrated mountain in Catalan, the native Caribs often are believed to have called the island, I don't give you all the hard words, Dad. Thank you. Aluagara, meaning land of the prickly bush. I guess a mix of the two meanings would be most appropriate. There's a large volcano, kind of like a mountain, that is known to be a bit of a prickly character, having erupted in 1995 and continuing with those eruptions until 1997. The capital city of Plymouth was totally destroyed, and 65% of inhabitants were forced to evacuate the island. Eventually, the UK offered emergency citizenship to those who had to depart, and roughly 60% of the island has remained in an exclusion zone after Soufriere Volcano's eruptions. Speaking of natural disasters that have struck Montserrat, the island is also in the path of hurricanes, particularly Hugo in 1989, which inflicted severe damage to the island. Hurricane Hugo also badly damaged Air Studios, which was a recording studio set up in 1977 by Beatles producer George Martin. Paul McCartney, Elton John, and the Rolling Stones recorded there, and many albums of note were recorded at Air Studios, including Rush's Power Windows, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, Duran Duran's Seven and the Ragged Tiger, and The Police's Synchronicity, and Ghost in the Machine. Videos for Every Little Thing She Does is Magic and Spirits in a Material World were filmed in Montserrat. After sustaining severe damage from Hurricane Hugo in 1989, the studio is now in ruins. Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull recorded the song Montserrat on the secret language of birds in tribute to the volcanic difficulties and feeling among residents of being abandoned by the UK government. The thing that ties Montserrat together with our next country is that they are both home to the critically endangered giant ditch frog, which is locally known as the crapaud or the mountain chicken, which is found only in Montserrat and Dominica. The species has undergone catastrophic declines due to the amphibian disease chytridiomycosis. Sounds good, Meg. Sounds good. And the volcanic eruption uh, in 1997. By the way, if you want more information about that amphibian disease, uh, you can actually check out uh, another podcast that we love called This Podcast Will Kill You, where they have a whole episode devoted to it. Let's hop one degree south and one degree east to Dominica, where, with a population of 72,000, they've recorded a total of 156 cases of COVID, only 15 of which are active today. Apparently, the mountain chicken is named as such because supposedly it tastes like chicken, though I haven't personally tried it. I can't blame you for not being thrilled about Columbus's naming logic. He sailed on a Sunday in 1493 and thus named it to the Latin word for Sunday, Domingo. Hmm. The Caribs called the island by Tukabuli, which mm-hmm. means tall in her body. Much different to St. Kitts and Nevis, Dominica is the last of the Caribbean islands to be colonized by the Europeans. This was largely down to the fierce resistance by the Kalinago. Today, Dominica is home to the largest indigenous population in the East Caribbean, around 3,000 Kalinago, once referred to as Caribs by the colonists, still live in Dominica. In 1838, Dominica became the first and only British colony in the Caribbean to have a black-controlled legislature. However, this was suspended in 1865, and then Britain re-established Dominica as a crown colony government. In 1978, Dominica finally became completely independent. Dominica is home to nine active volcanoes, although there hasn't been a major eruption since 1997 and before that in 1880. Dominica has the world's highest concentration of active volcanoes. They also have the world's second largest boiling lake. Discovered in 1875, it is actually a flooded crack in the earth that allows hot gases to vent from the molten lava below. The largest is Frying Pan Lake, located in Waimangu Valley near Rotorua, New Zealand. Meg, here's your chance to mention Jacinda. Oh, (laughs) oops, I guess I shouldn't have just copied and pasted that. But thank you, Dad, for helping me to mention my hero, Jacinda. Two-thirds of Dominica is covered in rainforest. In Dominica, there's a river for every day of the year, 365 in total. In fact, Dominica is known as the nature island due to its vast arrays 
of geographic features such as rivers, waterfalls, mountains, forests, and volcanoes. It is also known to be the most rain-drenched country in the world and is home to the Caribbean's first long-distance hiking trail. The Waitukubuli National Trail is 183 kilometers long and is divided into 14 segments. It is also the only country on the planet where sperm whales reside year-round, and it's considered to be the youngest country in the Lesser Antilles, hence all that geothermal activity. Well, it might be the youngest country, geographically speaking, but Dominica has a relatively large population of centenarians. In March 2007, there were 22 centenarians out of the island's 70,000 inhabitants, three times the average incidence of centenarianism in developed countries. Centenarianism, for all those who don't know these super long words, are people who are over the age of 100. You are correct. Dominica is trying to pivot away from their economy based on banana exports to ecotourism. The island is a beautiful mix of nature, as you mentioned, Meg, and bananas are highly susceptible to hurricanes that can rip through the Caribbean. In 1979, Dominica was struck by Hurricane David with winds of 150 miles per hour. At least 37 people were killed and 60,000 houses were destroyed. Nearly 75% of the entire population's homes. In 1995, Hurricane Luis destroyed most of their banana crop, which was their main export. In 2017, a Category 5 Hurricane Maria hit Dominica again, causing havoc. 95% of buildings were damaged or destroyed, 99% of the island lost power, and more than 50,000 people were displaced, and at least 31 people were killed. And considering all the wonderful things you mentioned, Meg, it surprised me that out of 22 Caribbean islands tracked, Dominica has the fewest visitors in 2008, 55,800, or 0.3% of the total. That was about half as many as visited Haiti. This might have been something to do with the geologic youth of the island, as white sandy beaches have yet have been created on the coast. Anyways, it seems as though those numbers are climbing, as they recorded 79,000 visitors in 2019, and hopefully after the pandemic is over, they can get back to focusing on tourism as an addition to their economy. As an easy way to segue into our next country, I've actually been a tourist in Grenada, Twice. Grenada, with a population of 113,000, our largest population of the day, has reported a total of 154 cases, and only two of them are active as of today. They are one degree westward of Dominica, away from the magic 60th meridian, and three degrees south, making them the closest country to the equator in today's episode. Apparently, there is some kind of confusion over Kit's naming of this island. I guess he saw both Grenada and Trinidad around the same time, and he called one Asuncion and the other one Concepcion. Generally, it was thought that Grenada was Concepcion, though. Later, when it was being settled by the Spanish, it was named Grenada after the Spanish city, Granada, whose name comes from pomegranates. There are no pomegranates on Grenada, FYI. Grenada is also known as the Spice Isle because of the number of spices that are grown on the island. It's particularly famous for nutmeg, which is actually the only plant that contains two spices as the outer shell of nutmeg is mace. However, it should be noted that nutmeg is not endemic to Grenada. A ship, while traveling to England from the East Indies, left some nutmeg trees on the island, which marked the beginning of Grenada's nutmeg industry. Today, the country supplies about 40% of the world's annual crop, and Papua New Guinea is also a large producer. By the way, both pomegranate and nutmeg contains my name. Indeed, nutmeg is my favorite spice, and I often refer to it as Meg in a Nutshell. At times, you are a real nut, Meg. (laughs) So a little history, okay? The People's Revolutionary Government was proclaimed on March 13, 1979, after the Marxist-Leninist New Jewel movement overthrew the government of Grenada, making Grenada the only communist state within the Commonwealth. The government suspended the constitution and ruled by decree until a factional conflict broke out. During the rule of the RPG, Grenada achieved some progress in many areas, including, but not limited, to women's rights, education, housing, health, and the economy. By the end of the Gary regime, preceding the government being overthrown, 
The economy was experiencing negative growth. Per capita income was falling. But when the PRG came into power, this quickly changed. The World Bank noted that it had been one of the few countries in the Western Hemisphere that continued to experience per capita growth in 1981. Mm -hmm. GDP per capita almost doubled from 1978 to 1983. And income tax was also abolished for 30% of the lowest paid workers. Mm. Unemployment was also sharply reduced from 49% in 1979 to 14% in 1983, a time when many, uh, most other countries in the region had an unemployment rate of 20 to 30%. The number of doctors also increased from one per 4,000 in 1978 to one per 3,000 in 1982. The infant mortality rate was reduced from 29 to 15, almost half. And the literacy rate increased from 85 in 78 to 90 in 1981. In regards to women's rights, sexual exploitation of women in exchange for work was outlawed. Equal pay for equal work was passed and mothers were guaranteed three months maternity leave, two of which were paid, as well as a return to the same job they had left. In 1983, Internal divisions occurred within the Central Committee of the PRG. A group led by Deputy Prime Minister Bernard Cord attempted to convince Bishop to enter into a power-sharing agreement with Cord. Eventually, Cord placed Bishop under house arrest and took control of the PRG government. So what you're saying is that the Deputy Prime Minister overthrew the already overthrown government? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. The removal of Bishop led to large popular demonstrations in different areas of the country. And in the course of one of these demonstrations, Bishop was freed by the crowd and eventually reached the army headquarters at Fort Rupert. Fighting broke out between the force and the civilians at Fort Rupert, resulting in many deaths. Afterwards, Bishop and seven others, including several cabinet ministers, were rounded up and executed. On October 25th, 1983 at 5 a.m. the U.S. invaded Grenada with about 7,000 troops. The entire invasion lasted four days. The U.S. was condemned by the U.N. and many other countries, including Canada, for their invasion. But the people of Grenada welcomed the Americans, even though the ultimate goal was to rid the island of the communist government that had been in place by Bishop since the coup in 1979. The country has been a democracy ever since, and October 25th is now a national holiday they call Thanksgiving. October 25th. It's a really good day to celebrate. I would say most people in my life give thanks on that particular day, given that it is my birthday and all. I should also probably make sure to celebrate it in Grenada one day. There are, of course, more things that I would love to see in Grenada. The country consists of one large island and six other smaller islands and is home to the world's first underwater sculpture park. The sculptures were developed with concrete and rebar and are placed naturally without adversely affecting the natural reef and the lives of its marine inhabitants. The Molinaire Underwater Sculpture Park was created by British sculptor Jason DeCares Taylor and opened for public viewing in May 2006. I'm also a big fan of having cocoa tea for breakfast, which is common, uh, which is made from local cocoa and spices. And indeed, in general, as a chocoholic, I feel that I would love it there. The Grenada Chocolate Company was founded in 1999 by Mott Green, Doug Brown, and Edmund Brown, who had the idea of creating an organic cocoa farmers and chocolate makers cooperative. They also have the Eucalyptus de Glopta, or the rainbow tree, due to the colors displayed along the trunk. As the tree matures and to a height of about 200 feet or taller, the bark falls away in strips. This reveals streaks of red, orange, lime green, and even purple. And although Grenada was struck by Hurricane Ivan in 2004, which destroyed or damaged about 90% of their homes, the country lies only slightly in Hurricane Alley and has been fortunate enough to only have been hit by three hurricanes in the past 50 years. Although our final place that we are discussing today has never been hit by a hurricane, it is a very windy spot. Indeed, the only city, Stanley, reports an average wind speed of 30 kilometers per hour. You have a bit of a better segue for the Falkland Islands, uh, Dad, though, who, with a tiny population of only 3,500, have only reported 54 cases and zero deaths from COVID-19. Meg, before that, I just wanted to say one little thing about Grenada. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I was there twice. So I went with a, um, a writing group with Christine uh, twice to Grenada. And it is 
a super friendly and wonderful island. And I, I just can never say enough about how friendly everybody was there. It's really nice. I do have a pretty good link between Grenada and the Falkland Islands. As a famously fast war occurred on the archipelago just one year prior to the U.S. invasion of Grenada. The English captain, John Strong, made the first recorded landing in the uninhabited Falklands in 1690. The islands were then passed among the French, Spanish, and British until 1820, when the Argentine government proclaimed its sovereignty. In 1833, a British force expelled the few remaining Argentine officials from the island without firing a shot. And in 1841, a British civilian lieutenant governor was appointed for the Falklands. Colonial status was granted to the Falklands in 1892. However, Argentina, calling the islands Las Islas Malvinas, regularly protested Britain's occupation of the islands. On April 2, 1982, Argentina's military government invaded the Falklands. The Falkland Islands War ended 10 weeks later with the surrender of the Argentine forces at Stanley to British troops. Prince Andrew, assigned to the HMS Invincible, was a helicopter co-pilot who served many missions during the altercation. There are still landmines left over from the war throughout the country, although a cleanup of them began in 2009. To this day, Argentina still claims sovereignty of the islands. However, an agreement between Argentina and the United Kingdom in 1985 sought to diffuse licensing and sovereignty conflicts that would dampen foreign interest in exploiting the Falkland Islands' potential for oil reserves. Then, in March of 2013, with 92% turnout, Falkland Islanders voted an overwhelming yes to the question, do you wish the Falkland Islands to remain their current political status as an overseas territory of the United Kingdom? You know, it is generally Great Britain-esque in the Falkland Islands. It rains about 250 days a year, they drive on the left, and their currency, though it is their own, the Falkland Islands pound, is linked to the pound sterling at 1 to 1. That being said, there are no ATMs and only one bank in the Falkland Islands, so I'm not really sure how you go about getting much of this local currency. Like the UK, they have a big number of sheep, although the number they have is much less than Great Britain, who have 35 million sheep. The Falkland Islands have 500,000, which means that they have 165 per capita. Great Britain only has one sheep for every other person. Lastly, they are just about as close to the South Pole as London, England is to the North Pole. Here's where they differ from the UK and from some of our other countries today. They are virtually treeless, and they only really have wind-resistant shrubs. I can imagine they might be similar to Greenland in that respect, though. They have 370 penguins per capita, with almost 1 million in total, and 63 species of birds, 16 of which are endemic. One of those is the black-browed albatross, to which the Falkland Islands is host to 65% of the world's population. The 60th meridian goes right through one of the two main islands, West Falkland. The only city, Stanley, is on the other main island, East Falkland. And there are a total of 740 islands. Everything outside of Stanley is considered camp, uh, named after the Spanish word campo, meaning countryside. There's only seven pubs in the Falkland Islands, and they only serve bottles, not pints. The phone numbers are only five digits long, and cell phones were introduced only in 2005. There are no chain shops or restaurants of any kind, and there's only two weekly newspapers, one of which is called The Penguin News. Oh, You know, the economy is driven by wool, hides, venison, fish, and squid, and although their GDP is rated as one of the lowest in the world, it is actually the fifth highest per capita due to their tiny population. They do have to import fuel, building materials, and clothing. Their largest employer is the government. And a little over a quarter of the population is employed in some way by the government. They are a financially self-sufficient British overseas territory. And with the impending oil exploration, they might have a lot more to gain.
Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Countries in Common. Don't forget to write a review as dad really loves to read those and follow us on Instagram at Countries in Common for pictures from today's episode. Next week, we are going to be discussing another geographic area that has fared well, although it has little to do with their global positioning and more to do with the historical lessons they may have learned from recent outbreaks of similar viruses. So tune in next week to Countries in Common, Episode 7, How South Asia Learned to Be Pandemic Superstars. Until next time, don't forget to look around at your neighbors and find something unusual you have in common with them. Ready? All right, we're going to McDonald's for a Mac.